This morning, I, I want to introduce you to who just so happens to be my favorite baseball player of, of all time. He happens to be in the room today. I just I, I thought you might enjoy the privilege of meeting my all-time favorite player. So, Hank, if you would, join me. <laughs> Join me up here. This is Hank, my all-time favorite baseball player, and, and rightfully so, because you're my, you know, the one who's playing right now. So when Duke starts playing, I have two, just so you know. All right, won't we'll, we'll play any favorites. But I, I asked Hank if I could ask him a couple of questions without embarrassing him or anything like that. But but uh, you, uh, how long have you been playing baseball now? You can hold that if you like. Five years. Five years. Five years. You started when you were what? About uh, four. Four. T ball yeah. and worked your way up and now uh, tell them tell them what positions you enjoy playing. Infield, uh, shortstop, catcher, pitcher. A little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like it. That's good. Now, Hank's a left-handed batter. He throws right-handed, and so he kind of gets from both sides there. What? Why? Tell me, Hank. Why is it that you, after five years? You're a veteran now. Why, after after these five years, do you continue to play baseball? Because I, I love it, and when I first picked up the bat when I was four, I just thought knew it was my passion, and I've always wanted to play it. Okay. So even though even though Dad gives you a hard time, you still want to play? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have there ever been times when you, when you felt like you kind of, well – yeah, I know I need to go out here and do this. i got to go to practice. Has it ever been something that maybe some of the love is not totally there sometimes? You ever felt that way? I mean, every once in a while I feel like, oh, why do I have to go to practice? I'm, just, I'm so tired. I don't I don't want to have to go to practice after school. I'm just like, oh. Yeah. And, but mostly I just always want to go to practice, and I always want to learn and okay. get better. So you love practice? Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's it's good. So the main reason you continue to play is because you love it. Yeah. All right. Well, that what that's really what makes you my favorite player. So thanks for taking the time. Give Hank a hand. He's been helping me out. We didn't rehearse any of that. I just asked him right before there. I leaned across Dylan there and asked him if I could ask him a few questions. And Dylan uh, is is a guy that plays baseball as well. Others. Uh, maybe you've done that. I, I want you to think about this morning why it is that you do what it is you do. Or why don't you do the things that you don't do. You know, it, it's interesting because when kids are playing sports or playing instruments or whatever it may be, and they begin to show some sort of aptitude for it, you see that they've got maybe a little bit of skill in that area, or they just seem to have a good time when they're doing it, the one thing that we all want to make sure that we don't do, that unfortunately we quite often do, is to steal their love for what they're doing. I have a rule of coaching. This is my first rule in, in coaching, and it's the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. That's my goal when I'm coaching young people is to first do no harm. Don't mess them up. And I mean don't mess them up in their skills and certainly don't mess them up in their love for what they're doing. I didn't tell Hank what to say, just so you know. 
I didn't actually know what he was going to say when I asked him, why do you play baseball? Well, because dad tells me to play baseball. I, that could have come out of his mouth. But I fully expected, based upon knowing him, that he would say what he said, that I love to play. There's something about when we love to do something that keeps us going with it. Some of you here have things that you absolutely love to do. And maybe that has something to do with your job, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's something to do with a hobby or, or just whatever it may be. But you have things that you love to do. Why is it that people continue to do what they do? I think there are a couple of different motivators that we'll look at today as we look at specifically about giving. But I want you to think in this in terms of, of why is it that you do what you do? Why do you work? Why do you play? Why do you... Uh, go to church. Why do you give in our specific topic this morning? Jesus preached a lot on giving. He preached a lot on money. He knew how close money is to our hearts. And you know as well as I do that it has extreme control over us in so many different ways. Whether we want more or we don't know what to do with what we have or we're, we're upside down financially, we can't dig out. Money has a drastic effect on us. It causes us, in some cases, great joy and happiness based upon the things that we're able to get and to enjoy and to do. And certainly there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying the blessings of life. But it also can cause us great stress. One of the leading factors in many divorce cases is something to do with money. Whether there was disagreement on how to use it or there wasn't enough and it caused stress, whatever it is, money is a big, big thing. Giving it is at the center of God's heart. I told you last week, and you were able to complete the sentence, God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his one and only son that whosoever will believe in him will not die for eternity, but will have everlasting, eternal life. Giving is at the center of God's heart. Because God loves, He gave. Because He loves, He gives. The truth is, we know also that we can't take any of our stuff with us. That one day, somebody else will sort through all of our things, will settle our estate for us, will divvy up all of our possessions that we've held so dear, and one day all of that stuff will, will really be gone. Somebody will spend it, somebody will use it, somebody will get rid of it, sell it in a yard sale, whatever it may be. Ultimately, we give all of our stuff away anyway. And yet, we operate as if we're going to have it forever. As if it's really our stuff. And yet we know we're going to give it all away anyway. So, so between now and the time when you ultimately give it away, upon your death, why not figure out between now and then, whenever then might be, why not figure out between now and then, what is it that God might want me to do with this stuff that he has given me? If I'm going to give it all away to begin with, and one day somebody else might determine where it's going to go, maybe I should learn from the Lord what has he written in Scripture, what has he revealed that his will is for my stuff, and, th and the money and all that he's given me. How is it that I can use it so that one day it's not squandered and wasted when somebody else decides where it's going to go? And so this whole series that we're in is simply called Give. And I told you last week, I, I don't plan on making any particular apologies about preaching on giving. I think it's biblical. I think it's, it's certainly something Jesus talked a lot about. And so we have good ground for it. I just want to try to pass along to you, what are the principles? What should we operate by? And so 
Well, we're in 2 Corinthians. If you've got your Bible, I would like for you to turn there with me. It's over in the New Testament. About midway through the New Testament. You've got a little handout there with the scripture for today on the sheet. Now, the words are not going to be up on the screen this morning because we're going to bounce around in this particular set of of, uh, verses just a little bit. But if you've got some way to get there, smartphone, tablet, whatever it is, try to get, if you would, the 2 Corinthians. We're going to to be in in chapter 8. And let me catch you up real quick. What Paul, the, the Apostle Paul is doing, he's the guy who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And if you know anything about Paul, he wrote to, to groups of people, churches, Christians that were to read this all aloud and then begin to operate by these principles. So he's helping them as their churches are getting established with some guidance, some Christian thought, some, some words from God, and he's trying to help them go in the right direction. He, he wrote a first letter to the Corinthians that we have in our scripture And it was really a a letter of correction. He's telling them some things they've really gotten off base. And and, and what we know from history is that we we believe anyway, Paul wrote up to about four letters to the Corinthians, two of which we have in our scripture. This one is the second that we have, 2 Corinthians. And in it, he's trying to get them, at least in chapters 8 and 9, get the Corinthians to finish up on something they had started. They had begun to participate in a collection that Paul was taking for the church in Jerusalem. If you know anything at all about what happened in Jerusalem, when when Jesus was crucified and then resurrected, and many people put their faith in him as the true Messiah, they had come for the festival of the Passover and then could not really or did not go back home. And even if they did, they were without jobs and so on, sort of branded as heretics. Branded as people who have gotten away from Judaism. And so these folks, as the church was established in Jerusalem, these Jewish folks were struggling. They had some major financial needs. They had fallen on hard times. And so Paul, as this great missionary, is trying to rally the troops and collect lots and lots of money to go and support the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem. That's what he's trying to do. And so he wrote to the Corinthians, who apparently were fairly well off, and he's writing to them to try to encourage them to keep going in what they originally said they would do toward this collection. Now, in order to motivate them, what's interesting, and we'll see this morning, is that he saturates chapters 8 and 9, not with a bunch of commands, and you ought to, and you should, and whatever, but he saturates chapters 8 and 9, when he talks about giving, with one word. The word grace. He talks about grace over and over and over and over again. He talks about how, how it's, a, it's a grace, it's a gift to be able to participate in God's work. He talks about God's enabling grace that, that helps us to be generous when maybe we don't feel like it or maybe we don't think we have the means to be generous. He talks about the grace of God through Jesus Christ and he holds that up as the ultimate example. Look, here's what Jesus did. This is what we should respond to. And so far from being some sort of condescending, obligatory kind of talk, Paul just says, I want to take you back to the grace of God. And so my goal through this series is simply to do that. And so you'll notice in each sermon, last week we talked about when you understand grace, this week we're going to talk about looking again at grace. I just want to take us back to that. Paul said in verses 1 through 7 that it's an honor, it's a privilege, it's the very grace of God in action that enables our generosity. He holds up this example of these people in a a region known as Macedonia, which included the area where the Philippians lived. He holds them up as this great example of what God can do by His grace through people. 
And his ultimate goal here is that the Corinthians would just simply consider again God's grace toward them and then let that be their guide toward spiritual maturity that results in generosity. Now, I want to read verses 1 through 7 again to recap, and then we'll pick up with verse 8. So look there. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves especially to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. That's a scripture we looked at last week. That's where we left off. My question to you before we move into verse 8 is if you're receiving that, How would you have taken it? How would you have responded? What if I told you that Paul had written some very strong words in other letters that hurt the feelings of the Corinthians? He had great motives. He wanted their spiritual maturity, but he had said some things and written some things to them that were very pointed. He was a preacher that wasn't afraid to step on your toes and would look you directly in the eye and stare you down while he did it. I can mess with Bill over here. I know that. That's right. Now, not Juanita. I'm not going to mess with her. But Bill, yes. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was. He, he, did not, he did not mince his words. Paul very directly corrected the Corinthians on many things. And even in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he wrote to them. He says, look, I, I sort of feel sorry that you got your feelings hurt, but not really. That's what he says. This is because I know what it led to was deeper spiritual maturity. So, sorry, not sorry. That's kind of what he says. Then he writes these words and he tells them about this other group of Christians in Macedonia who are giving so generously. Why aren't you guys doing that? What's wrong with you, Corinthians? These people don't have anything and yet they're giving. How would you have taken his words? Maybe some who heard these thought that that he's playing this holier-than-thou card. Well, Paul's, you know, he, he thinks he's closer to God than everybody else, and he can tell us all what to do because you know, he, he, he no, really knows Jesus. Maybe, maybe they thought that he was playing the, the guilt card. Well, these Macedonians, boy, they don't have anything. They don't have food on the table, and they give. What in the world's wrong with you people? I mean, you know, let's go. Step up to the plate. I mean, the least you can do is give a little bit. You ever had the guilt card laid on you? Maybe some of them thought that's what Paul was doing. Or maybe the because I said so card. Dad, why do we need to do this? Because I said so. It's enough, isn't it? I'm an apostle for crying out loud. I have the authority from God, apostolic authority, to tell you what to do. So do it. Give. Maybe that's what they thought. But the truth is, Paul was not doing any of that. What he knew is what we know in that there are different motivators that can be there for things like giving, for reasons people do what they do or don't do. And specifically, of course, he's writing about giving, so we'll focus there. Why is it? You'll see on your handout. Why do you give? I have in front of me our offering plates. 
and they're relatively full. Good job. But honestly, why do you give? When it was passed this morning, why did you or why did you not place something in there? I want you to seriously consider that. It was a question for them, and it's a question for us. Why is it that you give or that you don't give toward God's work? There are two different reasons that I think Paul summarizes and gives some specifics, but two different categories that I really find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15, that I think will be very helpful for us to look at this morning. There are two reasons I think Paul holds up as to why we give, maybe why we don't give. The first of which is obligation. Maybe you give because I should. Well, because I have to. Well, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'll throw something in there. I feel obligated to, so I I will. In this, you can feel, you'll see three different things there under obligation that I think Paul draws out for us. You can maybe feel pressure in this. Paul says in verse 8, look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. I'm not saying this as a command. What did he just say? He just told them in verse 7 to excel in generosity, to go above and beyond, to really go after it. Give as much as you can. Be as generous as possible. Just like these Macedonians who have incredible joy despite their difficult circumstances, they're giving all they can. Corinthians, you need to excel in this. Just how you excel in all these other, these other areas of spirituality, this is just one more. They could have felt pressure from this. So Paul says, I, look, I'm not telling you this is a command. I'm not giving you an order from some high position. This isn't about me trying to tell you what to do or like the boss telling you to get back to work. This isn't something I'm trying to just boss you around in. Paul's instruction could have felt like pressure. I mean, he could have said, look, this is your obligation. You're you're Christian people for crying out loud. God so loved the world that he gave. You're a Christian. You should give. So do it. Let's go. He could have thrown that apostolic authority around. He could have told them, look, after all, you've got more than enough. These Macedonians, don't forget, have nothing. He could have said, if you don't give, I'm going to pray God takes everything away from you. And I'm close to God. He'll listen to me. A little bit of pressure Paul could have put on the Corinthians. Now, many of us have felt pressure to give. Sometimes it feels like we're commanded. You may have heard sermons before. Where the preacher stands up and appears to command everyone to give and then give some more and then give some more and more and more and more. And it's a command. It's pressure filled. Sometimes you've felt subtle pressure to give towards something like when that little girl comes to sell cookies. What are you going to do? I mean, the Girl Scouts know what they're doing, right? They get the cute little girls, and they dress them up, and they come with cookies that taste really good, that are no good for you, and you know that. But you feel obligated because how can you turn this little girl away who's got her little wagon, and she's pulling all of her cookies, and she's sad, and you know, and whatever. And, and then she's really happy when you sign up for something. I mean, how do you turn that down? I mean, there's subtle pressure that. I, sometimes it feels subtle like that in church or toward Christian giving as well. Maybe you've 
given something just to get the preacher off your back before. Look, if you just just close in prayer, I promise I'll give something next week. I promise. Or maybe because everybody else seems to. And as the plate is passed, you don't want to be the only one not putting something in. There's pressure sometimes, isn't there? Whether it's internal or external. And right now, I'll be honest with you, I could pressure you to give. Lots of different things I could tell you. We could pull out the church budget and say, look, we're getting low right here. Got some other areas over here that don't have this or that. We'd like to increase this. We could just go line by line. We put it all up on the screen. Austin and I could work together and put that stuff up there, man. We could highlight it. He'd do a great job with that. We could pressure. But I, I don't believe that pressured giving does anything but result in some obligatory gesture that doesn't really last. Giving because of pressure, I I really don't think, means much. Many of us have also refused to give because of pressure. You know what I'm saying? I I don't like being told what to do. Let's be honest with you. I don't like it. I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like people putting pressure on me to do something. I am a nonconformist. Now, I, I, I just let you know, when, when things go viral on social media, guess what I do? I don't do that. Whatever it is. I don't care what it is. I'm not doing it. Why? Because everybody else is doing it. Don't pressure me into doing something. If I want to do it, I'll do it on my own. Know what I'm saying? Now, listen, I sound angry this morning. All right? Maybe I'm getting a little bit my feathers ruffled. But, but I don't like being pressured, so I'm going to go the opposite way. Some of you like that. You know what it's like. It's often a major turnoff. And it may be why some of us here today are very uncomfortable with me talking about giving. You know, okay, when, when's the other shoe going to drop? I know what you're doing. Pressure, though, whether it motivates you or whether it pushes you away, it only results in obligatory giving. So Paul says this isn't about pressure. It's not a command. He also goes on to say that giving out of obligation, it, it, maybe it's not always based out of pressure. Sometimes, he says... It's You do it, obligatory maybe, but you do it out of good intentions. Verse 10. He says, now I'm giving an opinion on this because it's profitable for you who began a year ago not only to do something, but also, he says, to desire it. They began to participate in the previous year. And and they had a true desire to be a part of what God was doing in the church in Jerusalem. I mean, there was, there, was some, there was a good intention. They really wanted to be a part of what God was doing. But the next verse, verse 11, Paul has to tell them, now finish the task as well. What happened? They stopped with good intentions. I, I, I'm not saying that, that all giving based upon obligation is, is, is out of some pressure. Okay. Now, sometimes we have very good intentions. We want to be a part of something. But they had not finished the job. They stopped short. Maybe they didn't view it as completely obligatory, but maybe there was something in there that, yeah, I want to do this. I know it's the right thing to do, and I know I should. I really do want to. But it kind of fizzles out. Now, some of us might be like this today. We know what we should do. I mean, the Bible tells us very explicitly, let's be honest. If you're a believer in Jesus, and let me, let me just tell you, if you're, if you're not, I'm not expecting you this morning to, to give to God's work. What I hope this morning, that if you're not a believer in Jesus, that you would encounter His grace, that you would encounter His love this morning. And we'll get to that a little bit. Paul, we're coming back to verse 9, just so you know, we skipped that intentionally. But if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, and the Bible tells us we should give, 
I mean, we, we should be contributing financially toward the work of God through the local church. We should be doing that. And, and you might say, well, I, yeah, I know I should, and I really do want to. Because I should. And there's something about doing things because you should that may eventually get you to a point where you really want to do those things for greater reasons than just because I should, but sometimes it stops there. And as a result of that, maybe we stop in our faithfulness in those things. Well, it's just another thing I ought to do. It's just another rule. Another list of do's and don'ts. Maybe our intentions really are good, but maybe for some, giving has just become more of an obligation. Yeah, I, I, I want to do it, but it's only because I, I know I should do it. Paul lists a third reason. That really is an overall kind of thing. Obligatory giving can be done out of pressure. It can be done maybe just because of good intention. We know we should. But there's also a way that we can do it sort of with a grudge or with a stingy kind of attitude. And that's when we take a view that, that, that we have ownership of our stuff and our money. I find verse 13 to be very interesting. I think Paul knows the Corinthians very, very well. I think he understands them. I, th- I think he, he knows things about them that maybe he, they don't want him to know. He's a pretty sharp guy. And he says in verse 13, after talking to them about being generous, he says, It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you. Now, stop there for just a second. I think this hints toward what Paul thought might be true of them. That maybe they thought if they gave something away that it would hurt them. That that it would cause them now to have problems. Well, hold on a second. Yeah, maybe I've got a little bit of extra, but if I give that away, guess what I won't have? Extra. I won't have any safety net. I won't have any cushion. There'd be no margin here. Paul's saying, I'm not asking you to give so that you just make it hard on yourself. This isn't... This isn't about making life difficult for you and, well, okay, I should, and now you're holy because life is difficult for you. That's not what he's saying. Paul knew that they had more than enough, and ultimately I think what he's trying to get them to see is that they need to release the ownership of their stuff. Maybe they had a view that that they were the ones that this is mine, and so if you view yourself as the owner of all of your stuff, and many of us here today do, then giving something away is always a loss for you. If you view yourself as an owner, then the focus is always going to be on what you're giving up. It will be impossible to be generous, to do anything more than just obligatory giving, if you always think it's a loss when you give something away. And we all struggle with this. i just be honest. You don't have to have lots of money to, to, to struggle with ownership. You could be very, very poor. You could be very, very rich or anywhere in between and struggle with this idea that it's mine. I hinted toward that last week. Don't tell me what to do with my stuff. Now, there are some significant problems with an ownership mentality. I'd like for you, if you would, you can go back and study this, but I'd like for you to jot down just a few Scripture references. They're not going to be on the screen. I'm going to take the time to read a couple, but I think it would be worth going back. Maybe the Lord speaks to you on this, and you say, okay, this is something I'm struggling with. I'm not even sure I totally understand what you're saying. 
Here's, here's, here are some verses that point to the problem with viewing our stuff as our stuff. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, 1 tells us very simply that, that the, the earth, it says, is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, that doesn't leave a lot of room for any of us to say, this is mine. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We have a problem then with our ownership mentality. When we say we, we trust in the Lord and we read a verse like that and we understand, wait a minute, this stuff belongs to the Lord and so does everything else. So then you have Deuteronomy chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 18, which counters the idea that, well, I earned it, it's mine. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, we get the idea that God gives us even the ability to earn a living. I realize that some here are so extremely talented and you are rewarded financially and with promotion based upon your talent and skill. And you ought to make the most of it. I mean, absolutely, you ought to leverage that as best you can. Do it for the glory of God. I talk with my children about it. Hank and I have talked about this with baseball. We don't know what baseball is going to take you, do we? We have no idea. But you know what? Do the best you can with it, right? Never know how God's going to use that. And in your life, whatever it may be that, that you have some skill and talent toward, and maybe it helps you to earn a living, leverage it. Do the best you can. But recognize Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says it's God who even gives you just the very ability to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is one I'll take the opportunity to read. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 to 15. I read this to our folks on Wednesday night. We encourage you, if you get opportunity this week, to be here. We're just having sort of a discussion on money management, money myths, and so on. And this week we'll talk about the money myth that I'll never get ahead. Talk about some strategies for that. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10... You say, well, it's mine. I'm going to do with it what I want, and and I'd like a lot more, if it's all the same to you. Verse 10 of chapter 5, The one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. Get more stuff. Never satisfied. This too, the author says, is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. You know what he's saying there? The more you have, the more people want from you. Isn't that great? Can I borrow something? I've got a couple dollars? A couple hundred thousand dollars? <clears throat> what then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But listen to this. The abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Sometimes it's true. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. <laughs> there is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. Sometimes it can harm us. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. If we view it as ours, when we die, guess what? We lose everything. Everything is gone. Now, this is no condemnation of having wealth. The Bible does not tell us that wealth in and of itself is evil. Not at all. In fact, there are lots of good things about being able to have money 
And Paul's hinting toward one of them here in just a second. Matthew chapter 6, you can write this down as well. Another problem with the idea that we own everything, that we are the owners of our money and our stuff. Matthew chapter 6, a very classic passage where Jesus is teaching in the the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he says in verse 24, no one can be a slave of two masters. Since he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. What? You cannot be both slaves of God and money. The truth is, the moment you believe you own it, the reverse is true. It owns you. And you serve it. This ownership mentality that maybe the Corinthians had here that was keeping them from being willing to release generously the funds that God had given them toward the cause of God in the Jerusalem church, maybe it came from the fact that they thought, I don't want to give my stuff up. This is mine. I'll do with it what I want. An ownership mentality is a very serious problem. Paul says you can give out of obligation. You certainly can. But let me, let me caution you against giving out of obligation. Now, for some, let me just tell you, for some, you need to begin the habit, and maybe your heart's going to catch up. Where your treasure is, there your heart goes as well. You understand? For some, you're that person, if I'm going to exercise, I just got to get going. And then later on, I'll want to do it. All right? So maybe for some, we're going to exercise this gift of giving. We just need to begin to be giving people, generous people, and our hearts will catch up. Where we take our treasure, there our heart goes as well. But I want to give you the greater motivation, the greater ethic in giving that Paul lays out for us. It's not obligation. It's love. Because in love, giving has, first of all, sincerity. Look again at verse 8. He says, I'm not saying this, this go excel in giving as a command. Rather, by means of, of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. True giving is sincere. That word genuine means sincere. It's not the result of pressure. True giving is voluntary. It's not forced. And no matter how large or how small your gift is, pleasing to God when it's given out of a sincere and genuine love. Both a love for Him and a love for His people. And I really believe that genuine love is the only thing that's going to to sustain your giving in the first place. You know, I asked Hank, why did he play baseball? I love to play baseball. You know, the, the moments when practice isn't so fun or, oh, I just get back from school, I don't feel like going. It's the love for the game that wins out. I love doing this. You know, it's the love for giving and seeing what God does through the giving of His people that keeps us going rather than just an obligation. Why is it that you give? Maybe after today you could say, you know, I give because of the sincere love in my heart for the one who has asked me to give and for the ones who will receive the gift. Giving out of love, Paul shows, also involves follow-through. We talked about the good intentions, 
that don't necessarily result in completion. Now Paul says in verse 10, I'm giving an opinion on this because it's profitable for you who a year ago began not only to do something but to desire it. He says, verse 11, but now finish the task as well. That just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may be a completion from what you have. Paul says, don't just have good intentions, but when you have love, you'll follow through. Add completion to your desire. If you want to give, but you only find good intentions, then look again at your heart. God, is my heart really set on love? Am I doing this out of love or just out of obligation? Good intentions won't last without love. We all have great intentions, don't we? Well, I'm going to do this. One day, one day I'll do this. You know, someday I hope to to do that. Good intentions are well-intentioned. But without a driving love, without a foundation of love, those things will not be completed. Love is the only lasting motivator. And if you love what you're doing, even in giving, you'll stick with it. Paul says when this giving is based out of love, he, he contrasts this. It's not because it doesn't come out of a sense of ownership, but it will come out of a, a sense of what the Bible calls stewardship. So you can kind of see as you fill out your, your bullets in there, we've got a little compare and contrast. On one side, Paul looks at them and says, guys, I wonder if you have a mindset of ownership, that you won't release these things. That maybe you feel like it's a loss anytime you give something. And he, sa he says instead, let me challenge you to an idea of stewardship. That's a fancy word that simply means it's not mine, it's God's, and I'm just managing it on his behalf. I'm not the owner, I'm the manager. Now when it's God's, which it is, you and I are just managing it on his behalf, doing with it what he wants in the way that he wants toward the things that he wants. When you view it as God's, and you give accordingly. Verse 12 says, if the eagerness is there, it is, is it, it is acceptable, this gift, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. It doesn't matter how much or how little. When you give out of a sense of God owns this, I'm going to direct it toward what his causes are, what he has shown me in his word that he wants me to do, then God is pleased with the gift regardless of how big or how small. And then verse 13 goes on, Paul backs up his statement. He says, it's not there. It's not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you. Look, I'm not, that's not what I'm going for. But it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need. So their abundance may become available for our need, so there may be equality. He's not a socialist. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about genuine care and love and concern in the family of God to say there's somebody who's a brother or sister in Christ. There's another church who's hurting and in need. There are missionaries around the world who are desperate for our support and our help. The gospel is going forward and there's not enough money to support it. He's saying that's what we've got to make sure that we're not sitting over here fat and sassy while they're over there struggling. You understand what I mean? It's not so we create hardship for ourselves. It's so that God's work goes forward and everybody in the family of God has their needs met so that God's work can go forward. When you view it as God's, then we begin to see surplus as something a little different than just for consumption. Isn't it interesting? And I'm like this. You have a little extra and you say, well, what are we going to spend that on? Well, what can we get now? I'm like that. Well, you get, you get an unexpected check in the mail from somebody. You know, just, wow, that was nice of them. What are we going to get? 
Now listen, that's, that's default and I understand that mentality. But let, let me just ask you to pray next time you have a little surplus. And I'll commit to do this as well. God, how would you have us use this? And I don't mean to put some heavy on it. That's not what I'm talking about. God, we weren't expecting this. Lord, you've brought this to us. How is it that we should use it? It may be that you, that you do something specific in, and, and among your family that say, all right, look, we, we've needed this for a while and we're going to do that. It's not, a, not an obligation. But God, how should we respond to the surplus that you've given us? Paul says, in that situation, the Corinthians, he said, guys, look, you've got a surplus. Somebody else has got a need. Maybe that surplus is there so you can meet the need. When you view it as God's, Paul says, you get to participate in some very incredible things. And these things will be used for eternal purposes. What Paul bases all of this on is verse 9. And what he tells them as a great reminder is to look again at the grace of Jesus. I want you to, to, before you pack up, I want you to look with me in verses 8 and 9 again. He tells them to excel in giving in verse 7. He says, I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by the means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. And then he holds up Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Some would preach this and say, well, if you follow Jesus, then just check your bank account tomorrow because it's going to be loaded. That's not what Paul's talking about. Jesus had it all. He had all the glory. He had all the praise. He lived in a perfect environment in heaven and left it all behind to trade places with sinful people like you and me. He came to a sinful world that hated him. So that he could offer by his grace salvation, the Bible says. And whosoever will believe will receive eternal life. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross, it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that on the cross, He exchanged His righteousness for our sin. In fact, He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 5 tells us that even while we were in the midst of our sin, caring nothing for Jesus, not even believing in Him, that He died for us. Look again, Paul says, at the grace of Jesus. Look again at the one who was willing to leave heaven and live among us and trade places with us. And then let his grace determine your generosity. Don't let this sermon do it. Don't let me do it. Don't, don't let the church budget do it. Don't, don't let your financial situation do it. But look again at the grace of Jesus and let His grace determine your generosity. Love like He loved. Give like He gave. And so today, let me, let me challenge you and encourage you and, and call us at the end to this. I want us again to simply look at the grace of Jesus Christ. Examine your own life and your own heart compared to Him. And tell me you don't need God. 
Tell me you don't need a Savior. Tell me you don't need somebody to make up for all your shortcomings. Because Lord knows I do. And tell me there's another like Jesus. Tell me there's another perfect one. Tell me there's another substitutionary death that works for you. Tell me there's another name by which you can be saved. Look again at the grace of Jesus. And then give. First give Him your life. Open-handed. Open-hearted. Throwing yourself at Him. So Lord, I give it to you. Give your life to Him. And then give Him ownership of your money and your stuff to be used how He wants. Don't give because I told you to. Don't give because of obligation. And we're certainly not going to take up another collection, so there's going to be no pressure today. But look again at the grace of Jesus. Look again at what He's done for you and for me. And then let His grace determine your generosity. And then be generous toward the things of God. Toward His work. Toward His people. Toward the the causes that concern Him. Look again. And keep looking at the grace of Jesus. Let's pray together. It may be for the first time that you're looking at the grace of Jesus this morning. The Bible tells us His Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, speaks to us. Brings something called conviction. It may be the activation of your conscience that lets you know that something is wrong in your life. That you're going the wrong direction. And God speaks to you today. And maybe you've been in church for a long time. And you say, today I've given my life to Jesus for the first time. Today. Give it all to Him. No more self. No more self-sufficiency. No more being good. Just give it to Him. And you'd cry out to Him today, Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I believe in You. Believe You are the Son of God. That Your death is all sufficient. It's all I need to forgive me. Your resurrection is all I need to give me eternal life. Maybe today you'd call out to Him. I recognize we've got lots of folks who've already done that. And maybe this area of giving is uncomfortable for you, but I just remind you, look again at the grace of Jesus. And let that determine your generosity. Release ownership today of your stuff, your money, and give it to God. Heavenly Father, we believe you are good and that you love us and that our our best option In fact, Lord, our only option is to give ourselves and all that we are and all that we have completely to you. So, Lord, we do that today. We trust you with it, with our lives, with our stuff. Thank you for your grace. We look upon the grace of Jesus once again. Thank you for the cross. 
We pray in his name. Amen.